welcome to Chromosphere, the color theory podcast. My name is Ed Charbonneau. I am an artist whose main focus is on painting, and I am also an adjunct faculty member in the Fine Arts Department at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. This podcast presents a series of conversations about color, color usage, and optics as they relate to theories of human color perception in the making of visual art and design. Hello, and uh, welcome to the episode. I am delighted to have uh, my longtime friend, uh, John Reichel, joining us. Uh, Friend, artist, uh, former schoolmate. Longtime studio mate. Longtime studio mate, yes. So, yes, um, John Reichel is a painter by, well, he's not totally defined as a painter. Uh, Also works in um, user experience web design. And you were trained formally as like an illustrator, right? Wasn't that your... uh, Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, At the College of Visual Arts where Ed and I met, I was an illustration major and kind of knew by the time that I graduated that it doesn't, wasn't really what I wanted to do. But I did want to keep painting. I did want to keep making art. I just didn't want to do it, you know, in the, in the way that I believed I would have to do it if I wanted to an illustration career. But I did, I did give it a, a little bit of a try. Like I had, I remember this was in 98, so the websites were relatively uh, new still at that time. And I, and they're also very simple. And I was working, actually didn't own a computer myself, but I was working in a research library as my part-time job during college where I had access to a computer. And I was able to just look at the source code in Netscape Navigator or whatever I was using at the time, you know, figure out how to make a website. Uh, and actually wrote my first one down in a notebook at home and then typed it up in the computer when I, after work. And that first one was an illustration portfolio because basically I couldn't afford, you know, the, the way it worked was you would send, you know, you would have high, very high quality samples printed out and you'd mail them all around the country and the world uh, in hopes of, of getting business and all that was a very, there's a lot of overhead there. Yeah. So I was like, oh, I can you know, cut out all those costs and get one of these newfangled websites and, and do it that way. And then by virtue of the fact that I had knew how to do that, how to make a website, that was kind of, that was the work that I was starting to get as just a freelance designer. Um, yeah. So I, my, my career, as a, my career, I started in graphic design, actually. I worked for a weekly newspaper doing display ad layout for them, and then later for an ad agency for a number of years, That's right. doing all, you know, graphic design across the board. And then over, over time, you know, more and more as, as, you know, as the web became more ubiquitous in our lives, the, the work became more focused on that. In the last, oh, 15 years or so, uh, I've been doing what's what user experience design, UX design, uh, is what it's called. And it's essentially the, you know, it's similar like graphic design, whereas graphic design is, is an aspect of it. The you know, graphic design being the, the, the way that information is displayed visually, that is a, an important aspect of UX design, but UX design has a, you know, a broader scope in that, you know, because a website or an application or anything with a, with a screen and a user interface, because those are interactive mediums, there's just a lot more to take into consideration. And first and foremost is, you know, understanding what the user experiences while interacting with that product. Nice. Yeah, that's awesome. And so your your development in that world of graphic design and web development has evolved in tandem with 
uh, painting and the studio work that you do, which I, we should say that we've shared a studio since, well, we, were, we moved into the same building in 1999. Right. We were neighbors. Over, yeah, we were neighbors over by the University of Minnesota. That building was torn down in 2006, I want to say. Is that when it was? That yeah. sounds about right. Yeah. But prior to that, we had moved in to a, a studio with Jeremy Shapinsky, yeah. who uh, listeners of Chromosphere, the Color Theory podcast, may know that Jeremy was the first uh, interview I did for season three. Friend of the show, Jeremy Shapinsky. Friend of the show. And so the three of us got a space together in that same building. John and I have been working within proximity of each other for the last 25 years, basically. Yeah, roughly. And then before that as students. And so it's been really interesting for me to see how your paintings have evolved over the years and then what, what you've shared with me about your work. Although you did build my website for me. Which oh, is yeah. Awesome. Long time ago. Yeah. yeah. I think I think that was an exchange for uh, some really nice tubes of paint. Yeah. Was, I think I got the better end of that deal. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Well, actually, one thing that's stuck with me over the years, I think it's very common, all my friends and colleagues and peers, it seems that they do multiple things. There are some people that I know that just go to the studio and paint, and mm-hmm. they're very few and far between. You know, I teach, and then I do the studio and work on studio paintings and commissions, you do the same. One thing you said many years ago, that you felt it was nice to have creative uh, careers, but they're, they're not exactly the same. Yeah. So that you're using different parts of your mind. Yeah, absolutely. That was so, when I worked at the ad agency, actually, that was probably one of, so all, my entire career I've had uh, jobs that fell into like the creative space. Some of them, you know, using different parts of the brain and different parts of the body than I do when I'm at the studio painting. Like, and the ad agency, I think, was the one that was a little bit too close to what I do at the studio, where I was just, at the end of the day, I'd be so creatively exhausted. I would get to the studio and I was just like, ah, I don't want to do anything. Whereas, you know, the work that I do now, it's still, it's still very visual. It's less creatively, less illustrative than um, the work that I was doing prior. But it's, you know, it's, it's still creative problem solving, which is really at the center of, of everyone's art in some way. Yeah, totally. And it's, it's using a skill set that I don't otherwise use in my painting, at least. Yeah, yeah, that's super interesting. You know, I think that that's maybe why I got so heavy into this color theory research, was because it, it has a, yeah. a writing component and, and, a, and a researching, seeking, kind of scratches a, an itch of curiosity that I have but then it informs other things, my paintings, and but there's different types of processes working when I'm standing in front of a painting with a brush in my hand, as opposed to standing in front of a computer typing on some keys. Yeah, for sure. It does seem like you've been building towards this podcast for a long time, and that, you know, for years ago you were doing uh, Specious um, Reasoning, was yeah. that your blog? Uh, where I, I, I remember you saying that you were really just doing it as an exercise in writing. You wanted to become a better writer. Yeah. Um, and then you were doing Kitty Cat Parade, which was like your delve into, uh, you know, uh, right. being a uh, social media influencer and content creator. And those, Heavy on the influencer. Right, yeah. And the content. <laughs> and the creator. And that ladders up very nicely into uh, what you're doing now. Yeah, so I can identify with that 
moving around the creative space. Yeah, it is, it is a weird process to try to describe because it feels like maybe part of it, and this is kind of getting into the color theory stuff, is that one of the issues with color theory is that it can become so technical and so like science-based or, or you can head down those roads, then where does the emotion come in? Does that stifle spontaneity or take away? And so I guess part of my thing has been trying to look for avenues where maybe how it, they inform each other as opposed to becoming like a robot. Right, and right. To me, it's interesting to you to be involved in a language-based creative process while I'm researching and, and writing, and then a unnameable creative process when I'm painting, yet they, they inform each other. Yeah, I... Uh, and I see that. And the reason I'm talking about this is because I see it happening in your work. Yeah, I can see that, too. In fact, I, as I've been kind of thinking about um, sort of the two halves of you know my professional life the the ux design and the painting uh, i've i I've really in preparation for talking to you today I've, I've been doing some inner monologuing uh or just inward gazing seeing you know seeing some connections that that hadn't occurred to me before um i think some of that we'll get into later um interest we talk about uh some of the accessibility stuff but even just the uh the process of discovery that both both mediums or disciplines, I guess, yeah. it's a better word, uh, have in common. Yeah, you know, they both kind of start with a motivation and sometimes a hypothesis, and and in in both cases, they're kind of free to just see where those take you. Yeah, nice. Well, maybe on that note, we could kind of describe a bit about your work so that people, our our listeners, can get an idea. And I should say too that. I'll have a web page uh, devoted to this, uh, this, this episode where you'll have pictures of John's work and then um, links to topics that may invariably come up for further um, research if you want to dive into that. And the link will be within the show notes of the podcast. Yeah, how to enter into a conversation about your work. Well, I think for me... The two things that hit me almost simultaneously, and I don't know, because I'm looking at some of your paintings right now, I don't know which one is first, but the two aspects are like collage and color. It might be color first, because they, they're heavy on the palette, feels very purposeful mm. in them, but then the collage is, is also very forward, kind of based in collage, yeah. steeped in that history. But it's like multi-layered, multi-faceted um, things that are overlaying each other. Yeah, I, 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 I've taken recently to, to refer to them as painted collages, um, just because they're not collage in the traditional sense of like cutting, um, uh, yeah, you know, cutting paper and pasting that together. It's more really more of a photo montage. Is actually probably a better way there to describe go. how it starts. And, and basically, mo- most of the time, uh, I, I'll start with. Collecting found imagery, usually based on some arcane criteria, bring those photographs or whatever they are into a computer and desaturate them. So actually, I'm for the color actually comes really late in my process. Mm. Um, typically, I'm working through compositions monochromatically. So I'll 
I'll take the, you know, a handful of those images and I'll uh, uh, composite them into a photo montage and kind of reposition the layers and adjust the blending modes until I have something that I think works and, and, and that essentially becomes, you know, the equivalent of a sketch for a painting and that becomes the composition for what I'm ultimately going to now, you know, render and paint on a canvas or a panel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I don't, the, the color, I don't even really think about color um, until I've started painting. And that color doesn't really get introduced. I guess with the underpainting, I'll start with like, uh, you know, burnt umber, kind of a phthalo blue and, and, and um, alizarin crimson. So just kind of working uh, in, in shadows that I can, you know, uh, tweak the temperature hotter or colder as I'm doing that underpainting. Mm -hmm. But that's really where color starts to enter into it. And even then, it's, it's not something that, I, I like to use the word purposeful. I like that because I don't, I don't think of it that way. I would like to, I wish it was, I could say it was more purposeful. Yeah. There's intention, but I don't know that there is purpose to the intention. And the intention mm -hmm. is more about, you know, I, I use color, you know, to, uh, you know, to balance out a composition. It, well, it's interesting because the working monochromatically, uh, I am, I'm already establishing, um, you know, where the high contrasts are going to be. A lot of things that one might normally use color for, those definitions are already established. However, once you introduce, introducing color in the painting process, it's like having a whole new dimension just blow up. It's like you suddenly have gone from two-dimensional to three-dimensional and that uh, there's this whole another language that you, know, you can express things in. The, you know, the, the act of the layering of imagery, it creates, um, you know, it creates its own abstraction while still revealing you know, objective recognizable things. Within those abstract areas, and even within the objective areas, I suppose, there's opportunities to treat that either as like structural, as a structural element or negative space. And where, uh, where like the really high key colors that I think you were recognizing in the work come into play is in those negative spaces, which I use to try to really push depth or push and pull the, the, the viewer like in and out uh, as opposed to around, whereas I think the objective imagery allows the, the you know, it's, it's kind of stepping stones for the viewer to move around from, you know, the X and Y axis, if you will, of a canvas, whereas yeah. color, I feel like, is more spatial, uh, like depth-wise. Huh. Yeah, it's the Z factor. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, so, yeah, so, yeah, because your work, a lot of it is very figurative, these photos that you're montaging together. There are, there are aspects of architecture and landscape and furniture and stuff like that, but a lot of the central imagery is figures. And so sometimes they're overlapping each other in ways that the figures themselves become very abstract, where you kind of maybe see that it's still, that it is a person, but that person might have three or four faces or something. Right. So then by making it monochromatic, like black and white, you're just thinking about value at the beginning. Exactly. So you can simplify it in a way to, to just, you know, take out hue and chroma and, and focus on that value structure of the piece. Yeah, and you know, another thing that, the way that I work at least, that, that I think is different from how people typically think about collage is I'm not actually like cutting pieces out and trying to like juxtapose things mm -hmm. uh, by fitting them together in a different way. I'm, I'm literally layering things on top of one another and then using, I think I mentioned blend modes, blend modes uh, which are um, 
you know, it's a, it's a concept that's derived from like darkroom techniques, but it's yeah. pretty, um, you, you know, it's, it's something that's unique to digital uh, imagery in that it relies on like, you know, taking uh, a, a common pixel and allowing that to be a certain level of opacity throughout an image. Um, so either like it can knock out um, all of your brights or all of your darks. Mm -hmm. And so you're essentially, and there's, oh, you know, there's, I don't know, a dozen or so different types of blend modes that are pretty common to a product like Photoshop or GIMP that, uh, you know, a lot of people are probably familiar with. Um, but what, what it's essentially doing is rather than like cutting things and repositioning pieces, it's taking a hole, uh, applying it to another layer, and then the, the two layers or multiple layers in combination are obscuring and revealing things. Nice. Kind of based on like the alpha contents of, of the image. Yeah creating the X and Y uh, surface of the plane. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, there's, I don't really think, I never really think about the dimensionality of the layers themselves, but yeah, you're right. There, there is, there's an order to them and that order uh, does determine, you know, it does, right. if you change the order, it's gonna look different. Yeah, the opacity would affect if, yeah. you, if you switched around the orders. Yeah. So that digital component is a huge uh, part of your process. Yeah, like, you know, I like how you refer to it as creating a sketch. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, you know, it's funny. I I like to draw. I still love to draw. Um, I would actually. I think I love to draw more than I love to paint. But I like the result of a painting more than I like the result of a drawing. <laughs> yeah. But just as an act of doing something, I really like to draw. But it's not really a part of my process when I'm making a painting. Sometimes, but very rarely. And I and I think that's born out. Of, I remember when I was in art school, an early critique that I had gotten was. I was showing, you know, some finished paintings and and uh, and some sketches that had led up to those. And keep in mind, this was in the illustration program, mm. and the people who were doing the the review, you know, as faculty members, um, were really drawn to the sketches, but didn't like the paintings at all. And I could see what I could see why it was that there was like a the there was a lifeness to um, the sketches, like there was an immediacy to them, yep. um, that in an, in an attempt to like recreate that as uh, as a more, you know, finished painting um, had kind of killed what made those special. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I kind of got it in my head that, well, I wanted that immediacy to be part of the finished product. And uh, I think one of the ways that I tried to resolve that dilemma is by taking kind of the expressive mark out of the sketch. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I can I can follow that. I've myself the way I work, I've I've always had a hard time taking a sketch and then reproducing it as a painting. Or I would much rather prefer not to cuz that cuz it, it's not about just I'm going to draw this thing and then I'm going to make a version of it in paint. Yeah. Yeah, that to me for me when that when I've done that it is a more deadening, I don't know if that's the correct word, but the life is just not quite as, as... Um, it's not as vibrant. It, yeah, maybe it's not, yeah, vibrant. I think, is I think a good analogy is like a band you really like might have like a rough demo of a song and there's just like something about that where there's, there's something that's just more real and less polished than say the studio glossy production that yeah. might have come out on the album yeah um that you know and that can seem more appealing because it just feels more like tied to the human experience yeah totally yeah like you you a glimpse rather than rather than just uh experiencing the 
the product that they produced, you feel like you're also experiencing something about the, the act of its creation. Well, and that, that kind of might lead into like discussing the content of your work. Like you mentioned motivation earlier, what motivates you and, you know, talking about the spontaneity that feels part of that process. Uh, so because we're talking about the process itself is motivational because one thing is leading to the next and it's inspiring new addition because you work in series quite yeah. often. So, and many, you know, there might be dozens in a series, right? Right. And so you're definitely following a chain of thought that's leading to other things. And I pulled from your, is this a good time to? Sure, uh, pull? yeah. Busted I pulled out. from your, um, John's, uh, I'll link to his website. Yeah, you've got quite a bit online about your work. So it's pretty comprehensive. But there's a line in his um my bio in your bio your artist statement and so kind of getting into talking about content is that maybe that's the word what is the content of yeah. the work because we got the x and the y the design and the z is the color i like that idea of a z space as like that color space right because i've had these thoughts about like when i'm making a mark i'm designing yeah yet it is colorful so i'm working within the realm of of the aspects of color, they're always linked. Yeah, it and, seems. And you know, I don't. You mentioned uh, you describe my work as figurative, uh, which I don't dispute at all. Um, there are definitely aspects of the figure to the work, but I'm not. Yeah. You know, I don't create paintings that are meant to be like a space that like a real space. They're not right. representative of how you experience the real world. But I do want them to have that that dimensionality to them. Yeah. Um, I want them. I want it to feel like a space that you that you can your brain can move through at least. Like you can like you can imagine this is in front of this. Yeah. Um, and that there's a reason that this is blocking this or this is floating over this. And if only you know if it wasn't in in 3D, you would be able to move behind this thing. And and I want the the. I want the, the viewer to be compelled to to try to you know move through the space with that in mind. Yeah. 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 Because it yes, if I say it's figurative, that's not to say that it's portraiture. Mm -hmm. That it's, but there are portraits of people. There are. Yeah. It isn't I mean, yeah, necessarily I, collage is probably the more. Um, yeah. Yeah. If you, if you think of collage, you know, in the same lines as you think of like landscapes, still lifes, portraits, and and figures. Yeah. So in your. On your website, part of your artist statement, you got one sentence. It says, I am interested in the delusion of memory and its arbitrary relationship with present awareness. End quote. <laughs> I am interested in the delusion of memory and its arbitrary relationship with present awareness. And that made a lot of sense when I read that. Oh, good. You're looking at me kind of funny. <laughs> well, hearing it now, like I, I uh, when you, when you mentioned it earlier, I'd, I'd kind of forgotten that that was what I had in my artist statement on my website. I've written a lot of artist statements over the years. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I think I must have been in a snotty mood when I wrote that one. Oh. It's a little. I like it, um, <laughs> and I don't. I don't disagree with it at all. Yeah. Um, but it's uh, the delusion of memory and the present present awareness. So, because you're one of the things about the images that you're using, the imagery that you're montaging, they do seem to tap into time mm -hmm. for me. 
some of them feel like they're people from a long time ago. Kind of a lot of it is like that. And, and even some of the, when it does kind of start to, a painting may steer its way into looking like potentially like a traditional portrait. And that, but that era of that portrait often looks, you know, turn of the century, to, you know, 1900s or 1800s or maybe the 40s or the 50s, yeah. uh, that era. And then, um, so there is a sense of time happening and like these spaces seem like they're happening within time. And then that idea of memory, but it also made the last, the last two words, uh, present awareness, meaning our awareness of what is happening, like that the viewer is looking at your work and that, they, that there's an awareness happening there of, well, that's, that's the, that was the question mark is, <laughs> that made me interested in- What is awareness? Yeah, yeah. like what, yeah, what is awareness? And Yeah, I mean, these days, who knows? How much, how much time you got? If we agree that, you know, the concept of awareness is a combination of perception and knowledge and interpretation, and those you know, things working in tandem. Two of those, uh, knowledge and interpretation, are heavily based on, on your own memory. Yeah. Um, your, you know, either you know, your memory of, of learned facts or of just experiential memory. So I cite this a lot in my work when I talk about when work is being influenced by the nature of memory or trying to express something about the nature of memory. And I cite this. Uh, a, a neurological study that I read a few years, some years ago, that essentially suggests that every time we access a memory, we uh, change it in a not insignificant way. Uh, and and in, the, in the actual article that I was reading about the study, it, it likened it to um, like a potter's uh, finger impressions in their, a potter's fingers leaving impressions in their unfired clay every time they handle it. And, uh, you know, the implications of that, I, I, I don't entirely understand, but it always brought to mind or always brings to mind this sort of preciousness of memory, where it's like, if the value of a memory is that it's the snapshot in time, this thing that you can rely on as a, as a truth that you, that you believe you understand and can carry with you, but then knowing that the mere accessing of that alters it. Yeah. What is its true value? And that kind of like that, that you know, there's almost a, a tragic, uh, it's like a no Henry story, you know, the, the, the notion right. that this thing that is of such great value to you, you can't even really, uh, it's like the money you can't spend. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and so there's a sense of loss, um, or at least I interpret it as a sense of loss, you know, having something that is uniquely yours and nobody else's. For you to truly get the most out of what it has to offer you, you are going to change the the very um, thing that you value about it, right? Which, which is its truth. Its truth. Yeah. yeah, that is something. Maybe that is the source of like a t a time frame within your work, because a lot of the images they're abstracted. Are they degrading? Like, is the abstraction? a degrading process or is it just that there's so much information that you can't parse out what bit belongs to what 
object? It's a, it's a little of both. So um, kind of depending, so, and, and I should talk a little bit about, you know, how I go from the digital composition to the painting, I suppose. Like when I first started doing the, the digital collage, um, and the reason I actually was working monochromatically was because I was doing those and then using like image transfer techniques to essentially like print out, I would print out the, the, the composition and like tile it out on, or print out on large pieces of paper or tile it out on small pieces of paper and reassemble them and then use a variety of different image transfer techniques, but most of them relied on the fact that the ink that was used to print was toner from like a laser printer. Yeah. And the nature of toner is that it, it rests on top of the, the paper rather than dyeing the paper like, you know, like yeah. uh, liquid ink does. Um, and so you can then use very, a variety of techniques to transfer that toner to another surface. Uh, but that's a decorative process. You know, it's like making a, a you know, it's like a monotype print or something, you know, or something along those lines where, yeah. you know, unless you're reapplying that ink every time, you're losing some of that information. Uh, similarly with these transfer processes, they're not, you know, you're not getting a perfect clone. Uh, you're, you're getting a kind of a, a ghost, if you will, um, yeah. of, that, of that original image. And so then for me, part of the process when I was painting was I was kind of part doing restoration and part doing interpretation, whereas I would have a choice to make. Was like, like I knew what the original uh, the original image looked like because I had kind of you know I had composed it myself. But now that we've changed mediums, we're introducing color. The scale is probably different. Do I and, and then based on the you know result of the transfer process, you know, do I want to? change what that was. I, there's an opportunity to, to branch off from what I was doing and do something completely different uh, or to restore what is lost. Um, and that, you know, I, I probably made one choice over the other an equal amount of times. Yeah. And then eventually I started using a projector, like an opaque projector, to uh, similar to how, like a, how you would have used a camera lucida a couple hundred years ago yep. um, to project that composition onto a large uh, a larger format. So if I was doing like a large canvas or something, I might use a projector. If it's smaller, I might just freehand it. It really depends on what I'm doing. But every one of those is has some element of degradation where you know, if, if it's the image transfer, obviously you're physically losing ink with the, uh, the projection. Um, you know, there's all sorts of environmental distortion that can happen there. Totally. You know, depending, you know, you're, you're seeing, even if there's enough light, just the light of the projector, itself in the, in the light that's in the room is going to give you, you know, some yeah. faded version of, of what you're, you're seeing. And then the pixelation also becomes a lot more um, yeah, because present. Because you're blowing it up. Exactly. Yeah, yeah that's fascinating. So, so like loss is built into the process. Uh, with freehand, the, uh, the degradation comes uh, between my brain and my hand. Well, yeah, that, that's really interesting to think about how that relates to the content. And then also going, you know, that, 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 that loss of the clarity of the image and the layering of the images. I was, when I was thinking about this interview and that word awareness, thinking of it from my own view of this whole color theory process, one of the things I've been really trying to learn about or identify or whatever is this idea of awareness and what am I aware of and how perception, you've mentioned perception and knowledge and interpretation. and interpretation. And that word perception to me, I think for a long time, I conflated uh, perception and awareness. 
and I don't know if I see it that way any longer. When I say perception, I like literally mean kind of the, the basic, you see something. The senses. Or you, yeah, the, yeah, a, a very sensory, I guess that's a form of awareness. Yeah. Um, but there's a difference between perceiving something and understanding something. And I yeah. think the awareness, you know, there's a certain level of understanding that's implicit to yeah, the concept yeah, yeah. of awareness. Yeah, because the perception with my senses, if my eyes are open, there's light coming in. The perception is just on. What I'm aware of at any one moment in this room, mainly aware of you because we're engaged talking, I've, I've ignored most of everything else. I can do the same with hearing. Smell is harder to do, although you do get used to smell, you know, when you walk into the monkey barn. Yeah. It is, you know, at the zoo, you're like, oh my gosh. And after a while, it's like, what? This is normal, you know? I don't know if it's on a level like that. Yeah, you know, I, I think I think awareness has a multi-dimensionality to it. Yeah. Whereas, like, if I'm if I'm standing next to a swimming pool, and I'm wearing a swimsuit, my awareness of the swimming pool is tied to everything about why I'm there. But if I'm yeah. standing next to a swimming pool and I'm, uh, you know, wearing a tuxedo, an expensive watch, or or holding a baby or something, my awareness of that swimming pool is a very different thing yeah. because there is uh, there are different. Different intentions, different motivations, different consequences all attached to, to the fact that it's there. Yeah. But it's still the same swimming pool. I'm still the same me. Yeah. There's just more uh, considerations. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and so, so if the, you know, that, so going back to that word, present awareness, two words at the end of your... So if, if, you, if we're dealing with awareness at the time of looking at the work, that brought me to the word expectation hmm. and because I I feel like part of the the loss and the degradation and the compiling of images is it it disrupts uh, expectation like uh, my expectations of what it is that I'm seeing and what it is that I'm actually aware of I know very little about this I think I've talked about it in other parts of the podcast but I think it has a, a a role for me when I'm thinking about color and I guess I just kind of see it there I think it comes out of psychology and listeners can correct me if I'm wrong but this idea of top-down and bottom-up processing and from what I understand top-down is often referred to as like a global view so I'm I'm in a space and I'm I, I, I make a quick read and I'm, I'm going to interact with that space based on these expectations of what I can expect, like where I think the door is, the floor is hard. The top-down can be disrupted almost like, and this is where I come to like this idea of awareness in terms of perception and specifically of colors and, and how we're talking about it, and specifically back to your work, is that I, I think I've come to understand that the the default tends to be for people, uh, it's impossible to generalize, so I'd make it about myself, because I accept this, that I default to the top-down mode. When I get out of bed, I'm top-down until something stops me and makes me go, oh, I guess one of the cats like had a little, you know, a little bit too much food last night, and now I have something that has disrupted my, <laughs> my yeah. path to the coffee maker and so now I'm in the bottom up mode 
of exploring the space looking for more barf. I think that top-down kind of default, as you put it, is, I, again, I'm not, a, I, I'm not an expert in yeah, this at all. But, and this is a um, Wikipedia read of this. <laughs> I, but, not that I went to Wikipedia, but. I have to imagine it's something of a, like an evolutionary, evolutionary imperative in that like if you, 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 you have, just to get through the day, yeah. uh, just to survive from one thing to the next, you need to be able to take certain things for granted as, you know, this is just the way it is and this is the way it's going. Until that gets interrupted, Until and then, and because like you, because you've been on autopilot, you know, you, you now have the, you know, it, it's easier to get kind of kicked into this new mode of discovery. Yeah, that's the context of how I've read about it. Like you're doing that until the tiger, until the bushes move a little bit funny, like out of expectations, there could be a tiger in there. Now all of a sudden you're, you know, yeah, early right. humans exactly. are like in the bottom up mode, and those are the ones that survived. And like you were talking about earlier, I think it was actually before we started recording, so apologies to the audience, but oh. uh, you were talking about doing housework when yeah. you kind of hit like a, a block in, in, you know, like writing something, for example, yep. um, and how going to do that activity would allow you to suddenly, you know, by doing something rote or something that didn't require any brain space, suddenly it, it allows you to um, kind of expand you're thinking in a, a, a way that you weren't able to when you were dedicating your entire existence to thinking through that. Yeah. Thing, so. Yeah, just for our, our listeners, um, when I'm working on my research and writing, I, I take multiple breaks to do housework, to do the dishes and clean. It helps me to process and come up with what I'm going to write down next. And now that I'm thinking about it, I wonder if that we I could apply that strategy to painting. Like if I've got a painting that isn't going well, I should clean the studio. Yeah, or or bring your dishes to the studio. Or bring the dishes over here. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna start doing that. I'm gonna bring my laundry to the studio from now on, and do a little folding <laughs> with that color so green that I just put on. I'm not so happy about. The studio is usually the reason I need to do laundry. Yeah, no doubt. Well, like bringing it back around to your painting and to go back to this bottom-up, top-down yeah. thing, one of the things that, as an example of artwork, I've thought is an excellent example of this in an artwork is M.C. Escher's staircase mm. um, etchings. Mm -hmm. So the, it, for me, I, you know, I go up to them, I see its staircases, I, I'm seeing the space, and then all of a sudden I notice wait a minute, these staircases are, this is an impossible space. These staircases can't possibly exist. And now all of a sudden the top down is disrupted by the bottom up. I'm exploring, I'm an active learner. I'm, I'm like a detective Sherlock Holmes going, there must be one of these staircases that actually work. And of course the guy made it so that none of them really yeah. add up. And I see that in your work where I approach it from a distance, and, and often you can see that it, there's a portrait or there's a figure or there's something. I'm looking at one across the room. As I get closer, though, I see that there's all these layers, and there might be 20 figures within there that are all compounded on top of each other. And it really, all of a sudden, then it disrupts my traditional, I'm going to go into the mode of portrait looking and now I'm in exploration mode trying to figure out like what's happening, who are, how many people are here, or, you know, all the myriad of questions that can just arise from looking at something that's so mysterious yet so familiar looking 
at the exact same time. Yeah, you know, the MC Escher uh, uh, example is an interesting one. And I think that the main, a major difference between what he did uh, versus what I try to do is like, with, a, with an MC Escher, you're trapped in his world. Like it, it's they're they're intriguing because you know they because of what you said they defy what your expectation is. But then you're once once you've established that you know this is an impossible space, so you start being yeah. confounded, and then you look further, and, you, and then you kind of unlock the secret of it. Oh, it's 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 this impossible space because of this trick right here, this edge, you know, yeah. whatever it yeah. is. Uh, and then and then you're kind of done with it. I prefer to um, use the similar uh, technique of trying to confound the audience by presenting them with something that they can recognize but is is obviously wrong, but not have there be, and it's not a puzzle to solve. A frustration but, moment. Yeah, but really, but yeah. rather, but instead kind of, you, you know, I talked about using abstraction to create depth and, and you know, kind of create pockets of, of abstraction, if you will, um, and then the stepping stones between the recognizable imagery. Um, and I think those pockets uh, really allow um, the the viewer, or hopefully, allow the viewer to bring, kind of fill them with whatever you know baggage they brought along. With yeah, them. insert themselves into those open spaces. Um, whereas I don't think something like a, a an Escher uh, drawing, there's really an invitation to do. Yeah, I agree. For my that's my experience with them too. I I would associate the words discovery and wonder more with your with the process of of engaging with. I like work. those words. Which is why I was so intrigued by your use of the word awareness to bring mm. it back to that, because that's where I like my awareness to be, I guess. That's where I prefer it to be in this realm of, of discovery, curiosity, and not like trapped into a hole of an unsolvable thing. Or worse, uh, immediately solvable. Like if, or immediately solvable, yeah, yeah, then it's... If the only if the you only thing something has to offer and... you is how well it's rendered and and you know what it, what its subject is, yeah, um, you know, and, unless you're really drawn to that, right? A certain analytical mind, that's where they go, and that that works. But speaking personally, yeah, likewise. Yeah. Well, and, and two, I think part of it too is going back to the inventiveness of the color usage and. One of the things that gets me, a lot of the times you're working on wooden panels mm, and mm -hmm. you'll use the, the grain of the wood, starts to pick up the lines of the figure or the line of the space, and you'll leave certain things unpainted and just put a, make maybe some polyurethane on it or something so that it just reads as the color of the wood, and that is the design, and it flows with the rest of the scene. Well, and a lot of the paint that you use is very thin washes, yeah. too. The Z-space for you is not a coating that you're putting on a surface. It might be opaque and, and it be a coating of sorts in spots, but a lot of the times there's a play of materials speaking to that depth of experience that you, were, you just referred back to that so there's like this cognitive thing of trying to figure out what is this thing that I'm yeah, looking right. at and how can I name it? But then there's this aesthetic thing going on where I'm like, all right, I can see these materials and and how they're engaging. And then and then coming back to that color where we started, that it sounds like it comes later in the actual process. Mm -hmm. 
there are these unifying aspects to nearly each piece. You know, a lot of the times they may read as nearly monochromatic, you know, like all yellow or something. But then there's a lot of other colors in there, but it's like dominantly the architecture of it is yellows. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the, the wood thing, so I, I probably, well, if I'm working smaller, I will generally work on wood. If I'm working larger, I'll work on canvas, and that's just a, you know, practicality of weight. But uh, when I am working on wood, I, 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 at one point I just bought a bunch of like these really cheap craft panels. Because uh, I wanted to, I wanted everything to be square and I wanted everything to be the same size for. Because as we discussed earlier, I work in series, and so I wanted a certain level of uniformity to it. Early on, I had decided that well, you know, th these were such cheap craft boards, and so they were they had a lot of character to them. I think is is the polite way to put it without offending the wood. So I decided not to gesso over them and to instead, you know, use like a, a matte medium just to make them so like to seal the wood in. I used a waterproofer and then. And then for the painting surface, used a, a clear medium. And I mainly just wanted to introduce, I like to, I think in part because my, the process leading up to when I start painting is so controlled. Um, you know, I'm, I'm working digitally. I, I'm, I'm, you know, getting everything just so. Yeah. Um, because that's so controlled, I like to introduce some, you know, Chaos isn't the right word, but some other yeah. aspect of it that is a little, that's a little more spontaneous or serendipitous. That where it feels more like you know a collaboration with me and you know nature. You know that's weird, but a collaboration yeah. between me and, and, and the substrate, and the, the surface that I'm working yeah, on. Yeah, the substrate. And it, and it's kind of fun. You know that introduces new uh, opportunities or possibilities too. And it, like I can realize like once I once I start to position something onto that onto the surface. Uh, Something that couldn't have occurred to me when I was planning what I was going to do suddenly reveals itself and it takes things into a whole different direction. Yeah. I'm a lover of process. And I always think it's fun when people can kind of see how the sausage is made. And then just like so being something as simple as, well, here's, here's the surface that I'm painting on, peeking through. I think it goes back to, you know, kind of that notion of the, the, the humanness of it. When we were talking about like the, the rough sketch or the demo yeah. recording, yep. the something, the imperfection versus the polished uh, final thing, I yeah. prefer to kind of live in that imperfect space. Yeah, what you're saying reminds me of um, what my mentor in graduate school told me once, uh, that sometimes the painting teaches us what to do as we're, like that. As we're painting it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's, that's probably true of really any creative yeah. Pursuit. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's probably it's probably why we're so compelled by creative pursuits. Yeah, to keep going, keep yeah. having that experience because yeah. we're learners. I wonder if this is a good time where we've been talking about this idea of perception and awareness and then going back to your work in user experience design UX and and how people inter interface with a website. I've read stuff that suggests that no two humans have the same color vision. Right. And, and I've read things that it's hard to actually qualify that or quantify it because it's so difficult to measure or something to that effect. I, yeah. I have to say I don't know a lot about that. But yeah, I keep I, coming I, back to it as like... I think you're, I think you're uh, tiptoeing towards the concept of inclusive design. Uh, yeah. accessibility. And so when, and when and we talk about accessibility, it, it, well, I guess it does 
essentially mean people's ability to access something. But as, so similar to like the how the Americans with Disabilities Act and similar legislation you know, back in the 90s um, paved the way for new uh, rules and regulations around um, removing the barriers for people with certain disabilities or any disability really to uh, have access to public spaces and public services. What led to wheelchair accessible ramps, uh, you know, alongside stairs or elevators, uh, or like you know the um, the sounds that a crosswalk uh, signal makes, uh, whether it speaks or whether it has like the tone that it plays. Yep. Um, you know, for for people who um, cannot see, uh, or or you know the braille on an elevator, for example. Those are all real-world examples of, of accessibility in action. There's a similar concept on, on the web or on in apps, um, or really any, any, um, anything with a screen and a user interface. So I should probably backtrack one moment. There's like a standards organization called the uh, World Wide Web uh, Consortium, the W3C. Uh, and they, they're an international standards organization that basically establishes the best practices for people building products, uh, digital products. Uh, and then they have a, something called the Web Accessibility Initiative, which uh, publishes a set of guidelines called the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, or WCAG. And that is, is I mean, that could be a podcast series, probably is, uh, all on its own. There's, there's a trove of, of guidelines there intended to address um, and remove the barriers for all types of disabilities or differing abilities. Everything from like making sure that uh, a website, for example, uh, can be read by a screen reader. So people um, you know, with low vision or blindness are able to uh, use an assistive technology that will read what's on the screen to them. Yeah. Uh, or the ability to like uh, navigate through uh, a screen using a keyboard as opposed to a mouse because the, the keyboard or the, the screen reader relies on, you know, a logical organization of information as it moves through content, or or like you know um, subtitles on a video or an audio description of uh, a, of a picture that for someone who can't see it. All those are all examples. But what is of interest to you and your audience is color, um, yeah. which, which is uh, particularly affects um, people with color blindness or uh, color deficiency, which is a very common thing. You know, uh, I believe in the United States, uh, the last uh, stats I saw was that one in 12 men and one in 200 women have some form of color blindness. And color blindness being either the loss or damage to one of the red, blue, or green cones in the retina, which mm. I know you've dedicated podcasts to yeah, yeah. Uh, exploring the, the physiology of the retina. With the WCAG, the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, have really just two main guidelines with regard to color. One of them is that uh, color is not to be used as the only way to indicate information. So as an example, in the real world, again, like a stop sign is, you know, it has three unique factors uh, that are identified as a stop sign. It's red, yep. it's very specific for red, it's octagonal, and it has text on it that says stop. Yeah. If you had like red, green color blindness where you were unable to you know, distinguish red from green as easily as someone without that, uh, you might not have any value from just the red part. So the other aspects are, are there to clue you in as to what the information is. So that's the, that's the, the gist of that one. The other one is around color contrast. I believe there are there's three types of color blindness, red, green, blue, yellow, and then one 
where you can't see any color whatsoever. And so the, the guidelines there are essentially targeting that third one, since it would include the others as well. There is a color contrast ratio that you're expected to. The ratio is, I think, uh, 4.5 to 1. So for example, if, if you had white text on a black background, that ratio would be 21 to 1. Okay. Uh, and so, and as you move, you know, and then one to one would be like white text on a white background. There's no contrast there whatsoever. I don't know how they zeroed in on the 4.5. I think it was based on actually a different ISO that was um, that defined 3.1, which is actually another 3.1 is also used for larger text and and graphics, like an icon or something like that. Okay. So size is taken into consideration. Yeah, scale. just just uh, um, not uh, not a scale of sizes. You really just two sizes. It's like a breakpoint where uh, if it's above a certain uh, type of point size, then you can get away with three point one. Interesting. And these are all you know. These, these are these are guidelines in that they're um, uh, they're very broad and because you know without so much goes into um, text in particular like typography. Uh, the style of the font, the weight of the font, all, there's all these variables that could be taken into consideration. But mm -hmm. I imagine for uh, the practicality of deploying these guidelines, they've simplified it as much as possible. So. Right. They don't, there's not a distinguish between serif and Right. Yeah, exactly. Whereas, fonts. you know, a serif would be another thing that helps distinguish, uh, you know, one character from another at a certain size or a certain weight. Right. The fact that they... In, in coming up with the contrast formula, you know, they're removing hue and saturation from the equation. They're relying only on luminance because hue and saturation both involve chroma in some way. Mm -hmm. And as established by that third type of color blindness, there are people who can't see color whatsoever. Right. Um, so in, in trying to remove that barrier altogether, they're only looking at luminance. So only looking at the brightness of one color against another color, which reminds me of how I, you know, my approach to the, the digital collage where I'm working monochromatically to begin with. I'm, I've removed all of color and don't reintroduce it until I've kind of firmly established those, you know, w what we're looking at in terms of its contrast. Yeah, interesting. From the design standpoint, it can be very frustrating because there's a lot of combinations that you want to make. Uh, that you're discouraged from making because they might fall below the threshold for accessible contrast. But at the same time, I always like to have limitations or constraints uh, to work from. Yeah. Uh, and so it does kind of limit the, the, the field of possibility, um, which can, um, in its own way, create new possibilities. Yeah, yeah. Constraints, they lead to an invention. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and to me, it's it's just another layer to consider how 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 everyone experiences color differently, and the, and going back to my awareness of you know thinking of the structure of a stop sign and that there's a logic behind it. I do know people who are deficient on the red green channel. Yeah, and it and I've had a, a it's very a, common. Friend, yeah, a friend described too that it's not that they can. It just it's a little bit of a question mark at first. Like, is it red or green? And it takes them just a little bit. Right. And yeah. Which is you know where. Um, so a stop sign is probably not the, a great example, but a stop light is stop, something. That's where, what I was thinking about. Yeah. Where uh, which is why there's you know there's a standard to the order that the lights appear in. Yeah. Um, there's also. 
I know that they inject, I believe it's some blue into the red and some, maybe it's green into the yellow. I can't remember, but they, there's uh, standards for how much uh, of, of a color other than red, for example, or green, uh, is part of you know part of the makeup of the, the yeah. ball. So um, there's short wavelengths. Yeah. So there's additional information coming through for people who uh, uh, have a harder time distinguishing between the two. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. That's amazing. Well, and just to kind of go on the aside, I think it's it's really interesting to talk about, but difficult. Just in virtue of, of um, that greater context that everybody sees differently, but then, f oh right, for me to speak directly to it is, you know, that's where I'm, I'm in outer space there because I'm not, you know what I mean? I have, yeah, I mean, how how can you speak to something yeah, that I'm you like, can't this is great. possibly? But I I think another way to to think about that is in addition to the fact that we, you know, I don't really know that you see the same blue that I see. There's so much that goes into how we perceive a color. Even, you know, a, thousands of years ago when there wasn't artificial light, you know, I suppose you could argue there was daylight, there was overcast, there was candlelight or firelight, and there was darkness. Yeah. But even then, even in the daylight, you know, there's haze, there's, there's, if you're further away from something, there's atmospheric perspective making things bluer. There's all these variables that are always in play that make like the constant, the, the idea of a constant color, you know, not even really a useful idea. Yeah. Um, and then take into account artificial light and all the temperatures of artificial light. Even in this room, we have probably five different temperatures of light going on. Yeah. Um, so at any given point, you know, if I took a, a red rubber ball and took it to any part of this room, I might see a different red. Yeah. Um, I wear glasses. Uh, there could be any number of conditions going on with the lens of my glasses that might change the, you know, the, that might affect uh, how I'm perceiving something. So yeah. there's, there's, you know, in every, every new layer you add, so much of what, you know, we, we see these days we're experiencing through a screen of some kind. There's a whole, you know, collection of new variables introduced it's, it's there. Light from vibration to, yeah, exactly. And even like the light that's uh, hitting me back from the screen, you know, what's that doing to the, to, to my, to the lens? Yeah. Yeah. The, um, spectral balance of the light itself, the atmosphere, that word color constancy is a term that I've encountered about how human color vision adapts to all of these changing things to maintain a constant perception of a color even though it is wildly changing, you can still say that's that red apple or that green um, can of Lacroix. So your memory of, uh, of the idea of a color comes into play with how you perceive the color in the present moment. Yeah. It comes back to that idea of awareness. The, the, that's the interpretation that's affecting the perception. And, and right. The, yeah, the knowledge and interpretation that's affecting that perception. Yeah, the system itself is adapting to maintain a consistent perception or awareness. That's where I start getting confused. And we could talk about consciousness, yeah, which semantics. I think is like a right, whole other yeah. ball game. The memory of the stop sign informs my perception of the stop sign. That's the theory. Going back to what we spoke about earlier with your paintings, my memory is, and I, I believe it, I, I experience it myself, my memories are continually degrading mm -hmm. they're, you know, and it's interesting to think of that idea of as they're accessed, 
that it's like a potter putting a fingerprint on an unfired pot. You can't get it, you know, changing it fundamentally before you put it away to access later. And I've read, too, that as we get more and more memories, that the pathways to all of them get much more complex, too. Right. So that kind of... And I don't know, I'm not... <laughs> I'm going to have to get somebody on here who knows something about that. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, even if um, even if the the thing about you know the the, the impressions in clay, even if, even if that notion that accessing a memory changes the memory, even if that's entirely false, there's still the factor that, especially you know the the further you go along and how far back you're recalling, you are coming back to that memory a different person. You have new experiences. You have new you know you have a, a cascade of. Uh, of things on top of that that you're coming back to it with a, a new perspective on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it informs new memories and memories of that memory with the, with the current present right. is a double memory. Unless it doesn't, because I also come back to the, you know, one of your earliest episodes, uh, you were talking about this kind of mass delusion that tree trunks are brown. Yes. <laughs> when in yeah. fact they're, you know, at best they're gray. Most of them are gray. But everyone just accepts that they're brown. And if, if you, you know, if you just imagine a tree and you're not thinking really explicitly about what that bark looks like um, and all the factors that, that control how you perceive that tree, you might just immediately assume that it's brown. Or, or maybe a more personal example. For, at some point in my childhood, I got it in my head that my mother had brown eyes. And for... Forty years, I, I labored under the just the, just my mom has brown eyes every mom, day, and then and at one point this came up in her presence, and she's like, I don't have brown eyes, my eyes are hazel, and sure enough, she has hazel eyes. I, I don't know, I don't know how I got that idea in my head in the first place, but the, once it was there, it was almost impossible to shake, right, to the extent where like I don't like if I imagine my mom, I don't imagine her with brown eyes, but I bet if you ask me to you know draw a picture of her real, you know, in color right now, I would probably want to, I'd probably be compelled to make the eyes brown. Yeah, At the same time, I bet sure. if I saw a photograph of her where you had digitally manipulated her eyes to be browner than they are, I'd probably recognize that something was off. Interesting. Well, it's cool that those stand, that these standards that you speak about, like in the work with the UX design, is recognizing the mass diversity of human color vision and addressing it because, you know, screens are becoming so much more and more like part of people's lives. And it's, it's, it's really important and it's, um, it's the kind of thing where I think if there was not, if there was not a standard, if there was not well communicated best practices um, that uh, designers in particular are less likely, unless they're, you know, unless they're advocates for inclusivity and, and, and yeah. have that already on their mind. That's an easy thing to forget. Um, so there, and there are lots of tools out there um, that help you. You know that that because it's I don't even know how you would come up with the. I, I think I understand the formula. It's like the luminance of one color plus 0 0.05 divided by the luminance, the relative luminance of the second color yeah. plus 0 0.05 or something like that. Um, that gives you that ratio. But there is you know there there are very easy tools online that you can use to to generate that yourself. Yeah, that is cool. And there's even like plugins. Chrome, I know as well. Actually, Chrome has a, a plugin. I can't remember what it's called. There's probably more than one. But I, I, I've seen plugins that will essentially emulate um, what uh, 
the or simulate the experience of looking at the screen if you have you know one of these various uh, color deficiencies. Yeah, it's always fascinating to to look at something, um, you know, through through another person's eyes. Yeah, know. absolutely. And, and not just color; like you can you can simulate astigmatism and um, you know even certain neurological um, uh, aspects that might uh, affect how your how your eyes focus or how your or even um, you know attention deficit. Yeah, yeah. Talk about perception and awareness. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, and we could go on. I, I have read that there are different portions of the mind that do different steps in the processing of the color. It's, I don't know if it's all happening in the exact, just in one spot. Hmm. So that idea that that level of diversity of, of, of how, right, because it is, yeah, because <laughs> there is like how that color is focusing and how uh, edges. Well, there's just a lot here. We could do part two someday. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, just another quick example as to like the value of um, the color contrast on a website. Uh, it's a universal pattern that um, you know green is, is is used for success and red is used for failure or danger. And if you have like a message that comes up, if you're if you're doing something important, you know, buying a plane ticket or something like that, yeah. and you have a message that comes up or an icon, you know, something that is less textual. Um, and maybe using only one way to communicate that message. If you aren't able to determine, you know, the severity uh, of what that message is trying to tell you, or if you know, if you're, you know, using, if you speak a different language than the content that you're interacting with, there are all sorts of variables, or like, you know, what's considered temporary disabilities um, that can come into play as well. Um, you know, it, you want to be able to, to discern one versus the other. Yeah. And, when I, and speaking of temporary disabilities, coming back to kind of how we see things in different ways, the, uh, the color contrast guidelines, they don't just benefit people who you know, have some form, some form of color deficiency. They can benefit anybody. Like if you are on, if you're looking at your phone, for example, out in bright sunlight, the contrast is so much dimmer. Yeah. So if on the actual content end there's more contrast being provided to you, it's going to be easier for you to read. Yeah. Um, or if, you know, you wear glasses and you're not wearing glasses at the moment, you know, that every little bit helps. So, you know, coming back to the real world examples of like the um, ramps or the curb cutouts. So on a sidewalk, there's a curb cutout yep. um, so that people in wheelchairs can easily get up onto the sidewalk how do they cross the street. Well, people on bikes use those, people with strollers, people, you know, delivery people with dollies. Yep. There, there's kind of thing where, you know, this simple thing that, that wouldn't have happened unless a law had been passed to force it to happen. Yeah. It, it creates, uh, removes that barrier for very specific people, but it's something that uh, is beneficial to everybody. Yeah. That's fascinating. I wonder if we're at a good place to to wrap it up. I think so. Bring it around it's, full circle. Well, thank you so much, John, for doing this. It's been uh, you're super generous to take the time to uh, have this conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank and you so much, Ed, for having me. This is a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, I love talking about this stuff. So yeah. thanks, thanks for a platform. Yeah, well, it's my pleasure. Mm -hmm. So, all right, well, thank you very much, and uh, we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please share it with your friends and family who may be interested, and follow Chromosphere, the Color Theory Podcast, on Facebook and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you if you have 
comments or suggestions. I'd like to thank Jeremy Shapinsky for writing and performing the theme music. Thank you also to Grant Winkles, Susie Manili, and Jeremy Shapinsky again for their production, consulting, and editing. <laughs>